Uh, good morning, everybody. I will say, I haven't heard that first song before, but I'm hoping for a breakthrough today. So that'd be pretty awesome. So thank you guys for sharing that. That was really awesome. As uh, Paul shared with you, my name is Sherry. I don't know if you remembered me. I got to come out in November, and um, one of my passions is talking. <laughs> so it was fun for me to be able to share back then, and I get really like hyped up and engaged in the process. So when Paul asked if I'd be willing to come back out, um, I said yes, because I am a verbal processor. I don't know how many of you are the same way, uh, but the more I talk, the more I relearn what I'm supposed to be thinking about. Um, so I feel like when God puts a message on my heart and I get to share it, I actually learn more about my own spiritual walk and, and grow through that. So when I had that conversation with Paul back in January, he said, I'd like you to find a story from scripture of Jesus's walk, like where people encountered, had an encounter with Jesus. And instantly I said, I want, I want John 4. And he said, well, that's great, but we just heard about John 4 in January from Dr. Milhouse, correct? So he shared John 4, and I said, no, Paul, that's not the story I want to share, though. There's a story in John 4 that's kind of, it's almost buried. It's, it's an after story. It's the rest of the story. So that's what I wanted to share with you this morning. So when we think about what the rest of the story is, instantly I thought of Paul Harvey. Now, I am officially 40 years old. I just turned 40 uh, on Sunday. So go me. I'm old. Thank you. Yeah. I'm like, I'm finally old. I like this excuse because whenever like I do something wrong at home or, you know, the kids roll their eyes at, I have two children when they roll their eyes at me, I'm like, well, I'm just an old lady now. So that's my excuse. But uh, Paul Harvey, uh, he was a radio broadcaster in America. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with him, if you've ever heard of him before, but I want to give you a little bit of his background. He was, um, when he was 14 years old, growing up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, his, one of his teachers at school said, you have a radio voice, you need to go into radio. So he actually started working in radio um, as a 14-year-old. He went and served in World War II, and then when he came back, he went into full-time broadcasting. He worked at KFDI, which at the time was um, just started a station in Salina, Kansas. And um, from there, he became a nationally syndicated news reporter for ABC, worked many years for ABC doing that. And then in 1976, he started a program called The Rest of the Story. And what Paul Harvey liked to do is he would take uh, experiences and stories, um, kind of give the backstory to it and then show us a famous event or a person and the reason that that came about. So he, he shares these um, obscure stories with us that kind of help show how America or how the world has been shaped. These stories were so popular that this started in 1976 by 2000, which was no longer a radio world. In 2000, he still was uh, valued at $10 million a year through ABC. And they started a program um, called The Rest of the Story. And in 2000 to 2009, that ran six days a week nationally around, uh, around America. So I was unfamiliar with Paul Harvey growing up. But then when I got married and I was working in Northern Michigan, every day at noon, I heard the rest of the story. And it's fascinating to me how individuals, like even people sitting in this room, the kind of impact we're gonna have in the future. So I wanna share one of those stories with you to kind of give you an understanding of why sometimes the rest of the story is more important than the story itself. So I wanna share a story with you about the Haldemans, okay? Joshua and Winifred Haldeman. 
in the early 1900s, and I'm gonna read this to make sure that I, it's an article. I don't wanna miss any information here. Um, Joshua Haldeman grew up on the prairies of Saskatchewan. His first job was breaking wild broncos. With that acquired skill set, he would organize one of Canada's first rodeos. But when the domino effect of the Great Depression hit Canada, Haldeman lost 5,000 acres and he had to start over from scratch. He tried his hand at chiropractic medicine and politics. Then Haldeman discovered his passion, flying airplanes. In 1950, Haldeman uprooted his family, moved halfway around the world to South Africa, a place he had never even been before. With the help of his wife, Winifred, and their children, he disassembled his 1948 single-engine Belenka cruiser, and the airplane was packed into crates and shipped to South Africa. The family reassembled it once it got there. A few years after this, Josh and Winnie embarked on a 30,000-mile round-trip flight from Africa to Australia and back. They are believed to be the only pilots to have ever made that flight in a single-engine airplane. Few people have heard of Josh and Winnie, but I bet you've heard of their grandson, Elon Musk. Musk's business adventures are well-documented and universally known. He has turned the automotive and aerospace industries upside down with a desire to colonize Mars. How does someone conceptualize this kind of goal? Who dreams this kind of dream? It's clear that it has a lot to do with Elon's ge genealogy. Let's say the apple didn't fall far from Josh Haldeman's tree. Throughout his childhood, noted one of Musk's biographers, Elon heard many stories about his grandfather's exploits and sat through countless slideshows that documented his travels. Those stories were the seedbed of Musk's imagination. Those stories were the shoulders he stood on. And that's the rest of Josh Haldeman's story. So see, there's always more to the story. And that's what I wanna share with you in John 4. I don't know if any of you brought your Bibles with you, but if you did, you can turn to John 4. We're gonna have the text up on the screen. Some of you know the beginning of this. John is actually, it's like packed full of stories. So feel free to read those sometime. But John 4 has multiple stories even just in the chapter. And the first part is the woman at the well. And that's the, the story that maybe you might have heard in January from Dr. Milhouse. Maybe you've heard it on your own at church or your upbringing. Um, but that starts the story. I want us to look at the rest of the story. So we're gonna read uh, the end part of when the woman has her encounter with Jesus. And then I'm gonna read part of the rest of the story and we're gonna unpack it together, okay? So we're gonna start in John 4. We're gonna start in verse 25. <clears throat> the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. But just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And then down, jumping down to verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Let's pray. <clears throat> God, we know that when we open your word, you open your mouth. And everything I'm going to say this morning, Lord, I don't want it to come from me. I want it to come from your Holy Spirit. Um, 
God, we need a breakthrough, like the song reminded us this morning. I pray that you um, will break through our hearts, God, that you will expose um, what our relationship with you looks like, Lord. Um, Help us to glow. Help us to experience that relationship with you and help us to understand what your message is through this word. In your name we pray, amen. Um, So we have to do a little bit of a background on this story before I really wanna look at what we can pull from it and apply. And so the first thing is the woman at the well, she does have a pretty profound impact in the story. She's a Samaritan woman. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the story, she kind of has a reputation in town um, Taylor Swift's all about reputation. So she, these two women would get along well. But uh, she, she went from guy to guy, lots of marriages, lots of divorces, and now she's just living with her boyfriend. So that part of the story, we have to recognize that she's going to the well at the time of the day that she chose because she's avoiding other townspeople or because they're avoiding her. It's not a good relationship between this woman and the town that she's living in. So we have to understand that when we unpack the text. The second thing we need to understand is that the town of Sychar is not the best town either. So I don't know what kind of a biblical background you get here at um, Sterling College or what you came in with, but I'm still learning some of this. So we'll see how my summary works here. Um, But what I understand from Sychar being in Samaria and Jewish culture, we're going to look at the religious culture of the day and age when Jesus is walking the earth and being with these people, okay? So um, there were the, the kingdom divided, right, in Israel uh, hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. We had a unified kingdom under King David and King Solomon, and then it split. And so we had Judah and Jerusalem, and that's where the Jews worshiped God at the temple, which was built as beautiful, glorious. That's where the one true God of the world was worshiped, Okay. Um, Samaria was the capital city in Israel, which was the divided kingdom, the the north part of the kingdom. Um, About 700 BC, 720, 730, they decided they didn't want to travel to Jerusalem anymore to worship God. So they built their own temple in Samaria. And they decided that they kind of wanted to have their own worship practices. And they decided that they wanted to rewrite their Pentateuch because it It just was better for them to have their own set of rules and things like that. So basically over the course of like seven or 800 years is when we get to this story, they've kind of made their own religion. They say they worship the one true God, but they don't. They're kind of doing things their own way, which is interesting. How often do we do that today where we're like, oh yeah, I know who Jesus is. I know who God is but I'm going to worship him this way. Even though this is what scripture says, this works for me. So that's, I, that's an observation I just want to share with you for Sychar. So even though this woman that lives in the village, she's a less than, the village of Sychar in a Jewish culture is a less than, okay? So we have to start with that information before we can really look at the story. Um, some Some other things too I want to point out in this story is that verse 28, the woman left her water jar and went away into the town. So her experience with Jesus was was so profound that she left her livelihood, she left her job to go back to town to tell everybody else about what had happened with her. And because of that, because she chose to leave that and go and tell other people, other people believed in Jesus. So If there's one thing we can learn from the rest of the story today, and this is what I want, I'm going to say it twice to make sure you guys hear it, is that there's a difference between knowing 
about God and knowing God, okay? There's a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. We look at that, it's very simple, head knowledge, heart knowledge, right? We're gonna break that down just a little bit more, but it's two very different things. And I thought this is easy for us to see in other areas of our life, you know? Um, I have some examples to think about there's a difference between knowing about something and like experiencing it. So the first example I thought of is junk food, right? Versus eating health food. Every one of us in this room has heard, we know about health food, right? What you're supposed to eat. We all know what's healthy for you and what's not. Now, how many of us actually go and eat the healthy food? If you do, I'm very impressed because I love junk food. Okay, I would have a Sonic corn dog every day of my life if I could. They're like my jam. That's all I care about is like ketchup and, you know, and there's so much sugar and ketchup. That's not stopping me because I want my Sonic corn dog. I also uh, like sweets for breakfast. Like, uh, like I told you, it was my birthday on Sunday. You know what I tend to do when I have cake in the house? I eat cake for breakfast, okay? That is winning at life, by the way. Um, but... What does sugar do? It doesn't make you feel really good afterwards. So again, I know about healthy food. That doesn't mean that I'm going to go eat it. Experiencing and knowing about it are two, two totally different things. Another example from um, my private life that I want to share with you just because it's made a huge difference for me, but uh, vitamin D, like that's kind of important to make you feel good. And I know that, right? I know that I should be taking my vitamins. I know that I should have vitamin D. This winter was very hard on me. Like uh, six to nine months of, uh, in January, I finally said, you know what? I think I'm struggling with depression. I was just emotionally all over the place. Like my husband told me a joke and I started crying and I thought, I don't think this is normal. Like I don't think normal people feel like this. And I've struggled with depression since 2006, just on and off. Uh, the seasonal affective disorder has been something that I've battled with. Um, but other things too, it's, it runs in my family, depression does. I've seen a counselor for it. But in January, I thought, I'm not, I'm not well. I know I'm not okay. Let's seek some help for this. And right away, I found a, a Christian counselor that wanted to balance the um, mental, spiritual, emotional health with the physical health. So she said, let's get you healthy. Let's get you on vitamins. So I started taking my vitamins and I kind of felt better, but I still wasn't good. And then I, uh, early February, I went to Mexico for a weekend, okay? That was my birthday present from my, my twin sister. So we went to Mexico together. It was fantastic. Now, the vacation isn't what made me better, okay? Because instantly I get there and I feel great. And I'm like, why do I feel so great? And I thought, well, what's changed besides being on vacation? What's changed in my life? And so I, you, you know, when you Google stuff, I Google stuff all the time, but I'm like, I gotta Google how much uh, vitamin D you get from the sunshine. You get 20,000 IUs of vitamin D from the sunshine in 30 minutes, Okay, so I checked my vitamin bottle at home. I'm getting 1,000 I use, right, a day. So 1,000 versus 20,000, 20,000 or more is what you should be getting a day, and I'm only getting 1,000. So when I get home, I upped my vitamin D intake. Oh, my word, I feel so much better. I'm just, I'm, um, I'm calmer. I'm less emotional. I'm, I'm being able to handle things. I'm happier. I have more energy. I knew about vitamin D, I knew that it would make me feel better, but I wasn't taking it. And the second I started taking it, I experienced the benefit of vitamin D. 
The same goes for you, your college students, right? You might know all about what you're supposed to do to get a good grade in class. You might know that you should read your textbook. You might know that if you study 20 minutes a day when it's time to study for the exam, it's easier. You might know that taking notes or listening to your professor is a smart thing to do, but knowing about those skills and actually using them, two very different things. When I was a junior in college, I, uh, I had mono for two weeks and all I could do, the, you know, they wouldn't let me attend class. So all I did was read my textbooks. Do you know, I've never actually like read a whole textbook before that semester. I got a 4.0 that semester. I couldn't believe it. So, you know, like, again, I knew all about what I should do, but then actually doing it totally changed my life. It's the same with our spiritual relationship with God. Knowing you can know all about God but you can experience God, okay? So if we look at what does experiencing God look like, how can you do that? Because you might be sitting here saying, okay, great. I don't wanna just know about God. I wanna know God personally, but what does that mean for me? I just wanna give you two things that all of us can do that will very easily help us know God, to experience God, okay? The first thing we have to do is first. We have to put God first. Put God first in your life. That's easy to say, it's harder to do. What does it look like to put God first? We tend to, especially as American Christians, we tend to think that God can just fit wherever we want him to. So if we love God, we say, oh yeah, I love Jesus, he's my savior, but I'm just gonna shove him here like, Maybe I'll go to church on a Sunday morning or maybe I'll listen to Christian music on the radio for 20 minutes. Uh, that's not putting God first, okay? That's like putting him last. If he's an afterthought of any decision you're making, that's putting God last. Uh, back to the story again, we look at it in verse 28. The woman left her water jar and she went into the town to say to all the people, this man is the Christ, okay? She left her job and her valuable water jar to go talk to other people about him. She chose to put Jesus first in her life. What does that look like for us putting him first? That means repenting from what you're not supposed to be doing. Repenting is a big word. It sounds very church-ish, but man, stop doing the stuff that stops God from coming in, right? If you fill your life with filth, God's not gonna wanna be a part of that. You gotta put him in and get the filth out, okay? Does that make sense? God has to be first. If there's anything in your lifestyle that comes before Christ, if there's anything that makes your relationship with Christ just a convenience, there's a good chance that you're sitting on the throne and he's not. You have to get off and let him sit. Uh, Philippians 3 verse 7 is one of my favorite verses, but Paul wrote this and he said, yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Notice he didn't say knowing about Christ Jesus, my Lord. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. I have a hard, I have a hard time swallowing this verse even now, right? I mean, I would like to think that Jesus is Lord of my life. I do not make decisions based on anything other than my relationship with Christ. But do I consider everything else in my life worth garbage, except for the knowledge of knowing Christ? There are Christians around the world that know this a whole lot better than I do, but when we have this comfort and convenience that we call life, we just think, oh yeah, let's just sprinkle some God on it when we want to, 
Mm-mm. We have to put him first. Leave what we had, start over fresh, okay? So that's step one to knowing God personally. Step two is you have to spend time with him. You have to develop a relationship with Christ. And this is where the villagers and the rest of the story comes in. So in verse 42, the villagers had already gone out to Jesus in verse 30. Verse 39, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. But then by verse 42, they say to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. They begged Jesus to stay with them for two days. And because Jesus is kind and loving and cares about all people, he stayed with them. Now, I already told you the background on Sychar, right? It's like a town that's less than Jewish culture. Could you imagine how the disciples felt about staying in a town like that? You know, they probably freaked out. They're probably like saying to Jesus, what are you doing? This isn't where we're supposed to be, right? But this also proves to us that you are never too far gone for Jesus to get you, ever. He does not care where you are. He loves you. He created you in his image. He wants to be with you. He desires an intimate relationship with you. So we have to recognize that we need to invite God in and spend that, spend that time with him. Um, you think about a boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, marriage relationship. If you spend less than five minutes a day with that person, how does that relationship go? Not real great, right? I've been married for 18 years. I love my husband, but the days that we don't talk to each other for more than five minutes, it feels more like we're roommates, you know? We don't connect if we're not talking, if we don't spend time together. My husband's love language is quality time. He just wants to sit on the couch with me. Like, it's the hardest thing for me to do because my love language is words of affirmation. I'm like, I wanna go do something. Let's, I'm gonna go clean the house. Why would I sit on the couch for two hours? I could get so much work done. This is, it drives me crazy, but he loves to just sit with me. The other day we had, and he comes home for lunch, um, the days that I work from home, and he told me the other day, this is my favorite time of my whole, my whole week. He said, I just, I just love sitting with you for 20 minutes. And I like to think that's what our relationship with Christ looks like too. Could you imagine someone that created you in his image is just waiting for you to spend time with him? And he just wants you to sit down and spend that time with him. We have to carve that out in our relationship. Um, I, I first did this when I was 19 years old, and I'm gonna talk about it a little bit more in my conclusion. But first, I do wanna look at Psalm 37 because it really talks about spending time with God. Um, and that might not be like an actual carved out, I'm gonna, two hours, I'm gonna sit down with God. But that's allowing God into every area of your life. So allowing God... Uh, on your walk to your first class, talking with him in a prayer, reading that scripture, listening to his word, spending time praising him for how he's created you or what he's given you, whatever it may be. You spend time with him. Psalm 37, uh, the psalmist writes, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. How do you delight yourself in God? Well, that involves a pretty significant investment in time, right? Um, commit your way to the Lord is the next verse. Trust in him and he will act, okay? So we delight in God, we commit what we're doing to him. And then later in the chapter, he says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Man, I'm terrible at being still and I'm terrible at being patient, but that's that time that you're investing in your relationship with Christ, that's where that comes in. So put him first, like the woman did in the story, right? 
and then spend time with him like the villagers did. And then we go from knowing about God to knowing who God is. It's such an easy transition. Um, but the rest of the story, and you know, when I first said, Paul asked me what story I wanted, and I said, John 4, it's like, this is my story. This is, I wanted to share this today because this is who I was. This is my story. My story was the rest of the story, okay? I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up in Michigan. We went to church every Sunday, you know, like the very traditional church where you know every person in the church, every family, it's the, it's the family church. You have like four generations going. We sat in pews, you know, um, I always had my dress on and we had these little tiny, we were allowed to have kitten heels when you're little, you know, you're not allowed to wear anything too flashy to church, but got dressed up every Sunday, Sunday best, uh, went to Sunday school, went to a Christian school, kindergarten through 12th grade. I would say that was one of the best investments my parents ever made because I knew all about God. I mean, every day I learned something new about God. I learned about Jesus. Um, I knew who he was. So when I was in fifth grade and I accepted Jesus as my savior at the Christian camp that I went to, it was not a life-changing experience for me because in my mind, I always knew that Jesus was my savior. I always knew that I was a sinner and that I would be separated, but Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. That was never something that didn't exist in my knowledge base. When I was in junior high, I did a prayer group at my school. I thought that was pretty cool. In high school, I helped start a Friday morning worship uh, series that we did. Juniors and seniors, we started uh, having a, a worship session every morning before school on Friday mornings, and it grew to about 100 people. That was fun for me. I enjoyed all of that. But I didn't know God. I did all of that out of head knowledge, okay? Never once was it here, ever. I could have argued theology. I aced all my Bible classes. I could do whatever I needed to do because I had head knowledge. I knew all about God. And I would have spent the rest of my life knowing all about God and just, again, sprinkling Jesus where I needed to. That seems to be the pattern for our world, right? Like, okay, well, let's just go to our normal job, not care about our relationship with Christ, not talk about our relationship with Christ, not build relationships with other people, just make money so I can drive home and park my car in my garage and not talk to my neighbors and watch whatever I want to on my television and go to bed. That is the normal existence for a large majority of Americans. That would have been my existence too. But when I was 17 years old, I chose to go on a mission trip to Alaska. And guess why I chose to go on a mission trip? It wasn't because I wanted to serve God. It was because I wanted to go to Alaska. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to Alaska? That's pretty awesome, right? It's, it was great. It was a great trip. But when I got there, God grabbed me. He said, enough with this foolishness. You got to make a choice. And I still remember being like, oh, I'm very uncomfortable, God. Like, don't make me think about this. Don't make me make a choice. And uh, the thing about going to Alaska or the thing about any mission trip experience or any Christian camp or any worship you know, you guys have a worship night coming up. Any experience with God like that is there's very little to distract you. I mean, nine times out of 10, we live in a distracted world. You go to sit down and try to do devotions with God. You're going to get a phone call. You're going to want to check your email. We are distracted. That's all that people are fighting for our attention all the time. But when you go to Alaska and there's nothing to distract you, there's nothing on your schedule. 
that you have to rush to. There's no noise. I mean, it was, I loved it. It was dead quiet. And I felt like God just used his creation to speak to me and say, you got to make a choice right now. Do you want to know about me or do you want to know me? And I made that choice. And I said, no, my life is not going to be worth anything unless I change what I'm doing and I put God first and I spend time with him get my priorities straight and experience God. And I experienced God for the first time in my life. And it was a big change for me. I felt like I was on fire, right? And not just for two weeks, not just on a trip. I came home and I felt the same way because I made that choice that I was no longer just going to know about God, that I was gonna know him. So I just wanna ask you, what's the rest of your story gonna be? Your story does not end at Sterling College. Your story does not end at your profession. Your story does not end when you hit retirement and you have your nest egg. Your story lasts for eternity. So is your story going to be knowing about God or is it going to be knowing God and experiencing God in a real way? So I want you to think about that today. I want you to sit down and read John 4 if you need to and listen to God speak to you through his word but I just want to encourage you to make that decision that you're not just gonna know about God, but you're gonna walk out of here and you're gonna experience God, okay? So let's pray. God, thank you so much for this time that we can be together. I thank you for all the students that are in this room or the students that are watching online or the students that are doing neither or the people of Sterling, God. There's so many of us that can learn from this message, Lord, and um, it's very easy to know about you. We, there are so much historical facts, Lord, that, that show that Jesus is real, that you are real. And we know that, but God, I just pray that you work in our hearts, that we can experience you in a real way and that we can be touched by you, that we can choose to grow a relationship with you and that the rest of our story will be an impactful one, Lord, that you will do great things through this group of people. So we just pray for a blessing on this day. And I just pray that your Holy Spirit will talk in loud ways and clear ways that that we can really acknowledge uh, who you are and, and grow in that relationship. In your name we pray, amen.